Welcome to the Nifty Podcast interview series. With us today to discuss trends we are seeing in Ethics Watch is Richmond County Executive Assistant District Attorney and Co-Chair of DASNY's Subcommittee on Ethics, Tim Kohler. Tim, thanks for joining us. Oh, uh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Sean. With our third quarter Ethics Watch, we wanted to take a few minutes to identify a few areas where we are seeing trends and provide a few suggestions for our prosecutors and readers of Ethics Watch. Let's begin with forensic sciences. Recently, we've seen cases where courts have looked at how prosecutors have explained or represented the forensic evidence in their cases to juries. What should prosecutors be taking from these cases, Tim? Well, I think, Sean, that the uh, the earth is moving a little bit, uh, and it's moved uh, in the past couple of years, but we've seen, uh, I think, a greater shift in the past two to three years in terms of what prosecutors can say uh, on summation. An area that's always been a point of concern is what prosecutors say on summation, putting forth the people's position, trying to be zealous advocates and staying within the rules of propriety so that they don't commit summation error, which these days has some prosecutorial misconduct implications as well. And I think in the heat of the moment, the heat of the battle, so to speak, uh, prosecutors have to consistently remind themselves that they can't overstate the evidence. That's not unique to the area of forensic scientific evidence, but I think it's a particular area these days that one has to be very cautious about. Uh, What do I mean by that? A prosecutor who's trying a case where DNA is an integral part of the people's proof really has to do their homework. I will say as an aside that the reason why I went to law school and not medical school is I was very poor in science. But today's prosecutor really has to be nimble has to have range, if you will, in terms of acquiring subject matter on a whole variety of issues, but particularly in the area of DNA. Uh, We can't just go down the hall and pick the brain of a colleague the night before opening statements and think that we have the facility with DNA to adequately and appropriately and professionally represent the people's interest in a trial. So I think in the area of forensic science and summations, the first thing to do is preparation. And that's really prosecution 101, regardless of what kind of case that you're trying. But I think you you lower the chances that you're going to commit summation error by overstating the strength of a piece of forensic evidence if you understand the science, and that's where the preparation comes in, and you have a better sense of, of what the contours are, what the guardrails are on the highway of your summation. And if you're not familiar with the evidence and you're kind of engaging in on-the-job training in that regard, I think that's where one could commit summation error unwittingly in the heat of the moment. So I think in the area of forensic science, that's that's something that the cautious prosecutor should be uh, wary about. The other is, uh, and, and if anybody hasn't uh, heard it yet, I would strongly suggest folks to listen into the podcast that you did recently with Rachel Singer on the so-called PCAST report. And for those that aren't familiar with that, that's the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. And I think uh, we have to do a little regrouping and take some strategic pauses in um, how we approach summations that includes forensic science and using uh, what a friend of mine uh, called the M word or the match word, that this is a match. Uh, and if you listen to Rachel's podcast, you get a introductory flavor of how important an issue that is and how no matter how much hard work you put into a case, 
if we flub it on summation, the case comes back. And again, we have to deal with the process issues that may flow therefrom. So in terms of preparation, once again, the P word, preparing yourself with the forensic science that's going to be testifying so that it's not just that the jury is has an understanding when the witness testifies, but that you understand it as well. This is not a situation where we can ask the expert witness on direct examination, well, tell the jury what happened here or what the results of your testing were and what are the steps that led up to that conclusion. We really have to know the science not only for summation, but in terms of the presentation of the evidence and on summation so that you can provide an orderly presentation of the evidence and fairly comment on what a particular witness said. Thank you, Tim. Each quarter, we see a handful of cases where the appellate courts have commented on a prosecutor's summation argument to the jury. In general, are there a few common areas that our listeners should be cognizant of? It's been a time-worn concern for prosecutors where an appellate court says that the prosecution was appealing to the sympathies of a jury, and as a corollary of that, making the so-called safe streets argument on summation that, you know, do you really want to be walking around the streets of New York City or Buffalo or Ithaca having this guy out on the street? And notwithstanding the fact that many, many trainings that I have attended as a student or as a presenter, or even having the benefit of the ethical highlights every quarter, folks still tread into those murky waters and make comment that can spoil all the hard work and passion and dedication that they put into a trial by saying something along those lines in summation. And we certainly uh, don't want to rely upon the appellate division saying that that was harmless error considering the weight of the rest of the evidence in the case. So, Our passions can get revved up during a trial. That's what it's all about. I don't think any district attorney among the 62 wants to see their prosecutors go in and give a Casper Milk Toast presentation of the evidence. We want the jury to know that we believe in our case and we want them to believe in the case, or we shouldn't be in the courtroom to begin with. But I think we constantly have to keep that passion in check. We have to color within the lines and we have to be careful about preying on the sympathies of the jury or making the state uh, safe streets uh, type argument because then you do go into that uh, dangerous territory and you run the risk of a reversal and having to do it all over again. And it seems that it's a moving target. The goals uh, change a little bit from time to time here. Well, you know, most cases are decided on the facts, the broader mosaic of the evidence. Was it a singular comment that was made by uh, the prosecutor on summation or was it repeated? Was there an objection that was sustained to the prosecutor's first use of a comment that was calling for sympathy? Um, or did the prosecutor repeat the, the foul, if you will, by committing it again more than once after having been admonished by the court? I think the appellate divisions and the Court of Appeals are less tolerant of giving the point, if you will, to the prosecution in areas like that. So I think we have to read uh, the cases. I think that's important. And on that note, I find the highlights important because it's not a series of here's the things that you can't do. It's not a no list because I think in the most recent distribution, I saw some examples where cases were reported where the defense contention was that there was summation error, but the court thought otherwise. So I think they're similarly instructive on the other side of the ledger on things that we can do. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the appellate division third department said that something was okay and a prosecutor in the first department isn't going to have a problem in the appellate division there. But I think it makes a little clear the boundaries, those guardrails that I described before, so that we can kind of know 
um, the environment that we're in and how far we can go without running into danger. So I think reading the cases is not just for the Appeals Bureau ADAs, it's for the trial students as well. And that's reading the cases in the ethics bulletins, uh, going through past years. And if a ADA out there is ever in doubt, go to a supervisor or any comment on, on that. You know, go to somebody I, for I, help. I think, I think the greatest lessons that I've learned as a prosecutor are when I've had the humility to go down the hall and talk to either a supervisor or somebody who's a senior assistant who's done it for a long time. Now, the caveat there is that if you go to somebody who's giving you the state of criminal law from 1986, well, that's not a good <laughs> thing because the law has changed substantially in, in some of the areas that we're discussing this afternoon. But there are so many resources at our fingertips without even leaving our uh, computer, our desk. We'd be crazy not to use that. There are electronic resources such as that which NIPTI provides, and there are really you know, colleagues who are more than happy to kick around uh, any particular subject here and share their experiences based on having been in the courtroom that I think it's a, a missed opportunity for a young, an intermediate, or a seasoned prosecutor not to bounce some of these issues around. And don't be thinking about some of the phraseology that you want to use right then and there in the courtroom. Uh, if you think that the words are powerful, they're evocative of a concept that you want to pitch to the jury, and you want uh, some reinforcement or affirmation that it's not going beyond the line, you really need to talk to somebody. And if an experienced assistant says to you, I wouldn't go there, you'd be wise to take their counsel and think of a, a workaround, if you will, so that you could make the same point, not with the same language. Thank you. As we embark on the uh, final quarter of 2016, Tim, any predictions for what's on the horizon for uh, 2017? Well, I think one of the things that we're uh, going to be dealing with once again, Sean, is the Prosecutorial Misconduct Commission. I think we're working in a living environment. I think the sponsors of that bill and their supporters are not going to let that go. I think every time someone in our community stumbles or outright fails or is perceived to have uh, done so, because not every media report is necessarily believable or accurately describes purported fumble of a prosecutor. But there are some instances that are out in the public narrative at this point where some members of our community perhaps are disappointing us and are not doing the right thing, which is a core value of all prosecutors, all responsible prosecutors. And I think we're giving ammunition to those who are proponents of the Prosecutorial Misconduct Commission unless we're comporting ourselves in an appropriate way. So I see on the horizon that that issue isn't going away. And what can people do? Well, it's not just a front office issue. I think sometimes assistance, and I've been a prosecutor for 36 years, so I've served in a variety of capacities as a variety of levels. And sometimes when you're junior assistant, you identify issues as being something that the front office has to deal with. That's for the executive staff to deal with. But instances where there's misconduct is usually, sometimes it is, but usually in the trenches, whether it's a summation error, whether it's withholding Rosario, whether it's a Brady violation or whatever it may be, that's happening in the trenches. So I think everybody owns that issue. I think every prosecutor in the state has a responsibility to do the right thing and to think carefully and to understand that the rules are important. I think that you know prosecutors are in the crosshairs of many these days, and I think that the wise prosecutor, the cautious prosecutor, is going to carry him or herself in an appropriate way where they're not uh, putting themselves in professional harm arms way. Uh, and then to the extent that it's the front offices and the senior leadership of the DA's association that are carrying the ball, if you will, in terms of pushing back on that commission, you know, that's probably the responsibility at their level to, to march forward and push back on that proposal. Tim, thanks so much for being here today. And if you're looking for some of the uh, resources that Tim has mentioned during this 
podcast. You can always find them on PE's main page and always start with Ethics Watch 2016. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks so much. Tim, thank you. 